Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. Supporters of former President Trump and Nikki Haley attended campaign events over the weekend. Hear what they had to say about their preferred candidate. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has officially dropped out of the race for the White House, endorsing former President Trump. How will his exit affect Haley's campaign and what to expect in the upcoming New Hampshire primary? Trump arrives at the New York courthouse for the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial, but the judge suddenly cancels the proceedings. Find out why. Nearly 70 people have died this month in causes related to the brutal winter weather. We take a look at some key areas of the country where freezing temperatures have been causing headaches. China, the world's biggest crude importer, defies Western sanctions to purchase vast quantities of discounted oil from Russia. Total spending reached over $60 billion last year. EU foreign ministers are in Brussels today discussing the Israel-Hamas war. Find out what some are calling the only solution to the conflict in the Middle East. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. And joined today by Kevin Hogan, standing in for Chris, who is reporting out in the field on the New Hampshire primaries. Welcome, Kevin. Good Thank to you. have you with us. To begin with, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has officially dropped out of the 2024 presidential race and endorsed former rival Donald Trump. Trump praised DeSantis for the decision, saying it was a gracious move. Despite enjoying a double-digit lead in New Hampshire over Nikki Haley, the former president is calling on voters there to disregard those strong poll numbers and make sure to cast their ballots. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more from Trump's rally last night. Former President Trump on Sunday night thanked Governor Ron DeSantis for endorsing him and for the first time in months stopped calling him the sanctimonious. He was very gracious and he endorsed me, so I appreciate it. I appreciate that and I also look forward to working with Ron and everybody else to defeat crooked Joe Biden. We will have to get him out. We have to DeSantis, while saying this just on Saturday, I will win the election. Changed 180 degrees on Sunday. We don't have a clear path to victory. That's after he finished at a distant second place in Iowa and is polling only at single digits in both New Hampshire and South Carolina. But we don't have any bad polls. We really don't. And our best polls are against Biden. And while Nikki Haley is now the only remaining GOP rival, and Trump is maintaining double-digit leads in three different polls in New Hampshire just days before the Tuesday primary. And DeSantis' exit is not expected to help Nikki Haley that much either, as a new CNN poll released just hours before DeSantis' announcement shows that over 60% of DeSantis supporters say that Trump is their second choice. And despite having strong lead in polls, and Trump is telling his supporters to not believe in polls and just go out and vote. He says it needs a very strong margin to be able to send a clear signal across the country about November and to overcome any potential election fraud. Reporting in New Hampshire, Iris Tao, NTD News. New Hampshire captures the nation's attention every four years during election season. Let's take a look at the first in the nation primary and why it's so important. Though the Iowa caucuses are the first votes to be cast, New Hampshire is the nation's first true primary. 
That's because the state maintains a law that protects its first-in-the-nation status. In 1948, legislatures in the Granite State decided to hold the presidential primary on the same day as town meetings to save money. New Hampshire's town meeting day was well before any other states held their presidential primaries. This meant that since that year, New Hampshire would always be the nation's first primary. The state's top election officials can also move the date if another state tries to hold theirs earlier. This year, Democrats wanted to hold their first primary in South Carolina, but Republicans refused to budge from New Hampshire. I'm thrilled to be here in the home of the first in the nation primary. Do you know why you're first in the nation? Because of me. I kept you there. Unlike Biden, I kept you there. So why is this important? Whoever wins the New Hampshire primary captures early momentum in the race for their party's nomination, and losers have to reevaluate their campaigns. With only two candidates left on the GOP side and former President Trump in the lead, a disappointing performance in New Hampshire could mean the end of Nikki Haley's campaign that would make Trump the Republican nominee for a third straight election. But New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu believes Haley could still pull off an upset even if she doesn't win the Granite State. On the other hand, if she does well, she could carry that momentum into future primaries. But everything Nikki's trying to do is build on the momentum from Iowa, right? 2% to 20%, build on even more momentum here. The fact that she's knocked all the other candidates out, nobody thought that was possible, but she's really knocked everybody out. Voters in New Hampshire are different from those in Iowa. They're more moderate and less evangelical. Haley is positioning herself as that moderate option for New Hampshire Republicans. This is a wake-up call for the Republican Party. Do you want to go with a small amount that you keep pushing people away, or do you want to go with a conservative that knows how to talk to moderates and independents and not make them feel bad, but make them feel included? On the Democratic side, President Joe Biden is in the lead, but the Democratic National Committee's new rules made South Carolina their first official primary instead of New Hampshire. This means Biden's name will not appear on the New Hampshire ballots. Voters will have to write in his name, and a victory here will not give the winner any delegates. The DNC has deemed the New Hampshire primary meaningless, but Biden's closest competitor, Congressman Dean Phillips of Minnesota, is hoping to take advantage of the president's absence. I love you all. Y'all ready for some change? Yeah, well, I am too. A CNN University of New Hampshire poll released on Sunday showed Biden drawing 63% of the state's primary vote, with Phillips at 10%. And here to discuss the primary race is the director of the Presidential Roller Coaster 2024 on Epic TV and author of the new book, American Refugees, Roger Simon. Roger, you've long said that the GOP primary race is already over. Some analysts have predicted Nikki Haley could do better in New Hampshire. What key factors do you think will influence the outcome of this race? And does any of it have the potential to upset Trump's momentum? No, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, I, I, you know, I, we in the media would like it to be so because a horse race is more fun from the media point of view. But in reality, it's, it's pretty much over. Uh, it, not just because of New Hampshire, but because of South Carolina coming up next on February 24. And that is the home state of Nikki Haley. And if she doesn't do really well in New Hampshire, meaning a very close second or, uh, you know, or a win, which doesn't seem at all likely, uh, she may drop out 
pretty quickly because uh, it, it, she's doing very poorly in her home state. Okay. And that's the kind of a humiliation that I don't think she'd want. Unless her backers are so <laughs> so determined to push her forward because she she right, has so uh, it depends a, on the on the funding of, of course. I just wanted to look now at uh, Trump's strategy. You wrote it recently in the Epic Times that he's seeking a wave election and even wanting to challenge traditionally blue states. How do you think that strategy will play out? Well, I, I think that that is a a commonly done strategy when you think you have a chance to do it because it's going to scare the <clears throat> it's going to scare the democratic party a bit and i think right now they're actually quite scared of trump uh potential to have some kind of a wave election which we wouldn't have anticipated a year ago but things have been so bad in the country that there's an opening and i think the democrats know it i think they're very fearful which may mean that Biden is more likely to be replaced by someone like Michelle Obama. Yeah, you also wrote about that recently. Um, and you've said that you expect that to come earlier rather than later. Uh, could you talk about the dynamics at play there and how they might affect the political campaigns of both Haley and Trump? Well, previously, I had thought that if Biden was uh, replaced, it would be very late. Uh, it would be either uh, at just before or during the convention in Chicago in August. But now I, I'm sensing panic on the on the Democratic side that you don't re, re, re usually see. I mean, in terms of many of its more prominent thinkers and. So that may push forward changes. I, you know, I'm not 100% sure of that. You know, as Yogi Berra has told us years ago, predictions are dangerous, particularly about the future. So uh, I, don't, I don't want to get too much egg on my face, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that, that, that there are going to be big changes. And this is a, a year of change. I mean, we've had spectacular amounts of things that no one could have predicted in the last few years. Yeah. Now, just staying on the Democratic Party in their primary, as we just heard, the DNC primary in New Hampshire has been called meaningless by some. How do you see it? I think it is essentially meaningless because Phillips, the, the, uh, the second candidate, has not made much of a dent, even though if you look at what he says, he's a fairly rational guy and, and he is sort of like a Democrat of the days of... Uh, of, of the Kennedys and so forth. He's an old-time Democrat. But, but uh, that doesn't seem to be resonating in today's Democratic Party. So I have to agree with that general consideration okay. that, that, uh, that the, uh, it, the primary is NBD, no big deal for them. Right. And just lastly, Roger, how do you see the role of the media in shaping people's perceptions of the candidates? Well, as, as usual, my feeling about the media is their influence is maligned. <laughs> I, I disagree with, uh, with Trump on one level. I think they're worse than fake news. They're just a propaganda organ most of the time. And you, you can look for, they will f try to find any way possible to stop Trump. All right. Thank you so much, Roger Simon, director of the Presidential Roller Coaster 2024 on Epic TV. Great to speak with you.
Now we take a look at candidate Nikki Haley. NTD's Daniel Monahan reports on what she and her supporters are discussing as the hour of the New Hampshire primary and perhaps her political future draws near. Judge Judy or Judith Scheindlin warned about another Biden or Trump presidency on Sunday, saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We've already seen... We've already seen what these two presidencies look like. It's time for Nikki Haley. Independent voter Nancy Hansen says the country needs change. Both Democrat and Republican, and the best chance for that, I think, this year is through Nikki Haley. Undecided voter John Anthony is putting in the work to choose his candidate. I haven't picked who I'm going to vote for. I've been to every single person's rally that's been around the area. 20-year-old Noah Merrow says he generally leans Democrat. Because of a lot of the issues, um, specifically abortion, things like that. Um, but Nikki Haley seems like a more approachable option because she's more centrist on the issues. Greg Moore says white-collar educated voters like Nikki Haley. But Donald Trump just rubs them the wrong way, mostly a lot because of the tone. Commodities broker Chris Jay says he's leaning towards Haley. I just think that the, the theme of different candidate other than Biden and Trump is just critically important to where we're going. Jay hopes Haley can muster the strength to battle Trump. And um, I would like for her to show tougher and I would like to her to, for her to go up against Trump. I just don't know if she can do it. Haley on Saturday painted herself as a defender of the common man. I call elected officials out because accountability matters. I fight for the taxpayers. I fight for the real people. I don't fight for the politicians. Haley questioned whether Trump or Biden were mentally capable of serving as president again. We have a country in disarray and a world on fire, and we need to know that we are not giving our kids options of two 80-year-olds going into a presidency. Since entering the Republican race nearly a year ago, Haley has advocated for mental competency tests for older politicians. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Just one day to go before the New Hampshire primaries. NTD's Daniel Monahan reports on what frontrunner former President Trump and his supporters are saying as the contest edges closer. Former President Trump urged supporters to help get out the vote, speaking in Manchester, New Hampshire, over the weekend. So you need to get every patriot you know and turn them out to vote in record numbers. We have to not win, we have to win by a lot because we have to send a signal in November that we're coming. The president called on the GOP to come together. We have to unify because we have very important business ahead of us. Voters lined up in freezing temperatures outside an arena in downtown Manchester on Saturday to hear Trump lay out his plans for the country. 19-year-old Nino says he stands with Trump and agrees with most of his vision. I'm out here to be part of uh, history, I guess, um, and just to support Trump. Carla Marshall says people are working hard to keep Trump down, but he just bounces right up. I really love the guy, and I've never felt that way about a politician before. He says stuff that's inappropriate a lot, but a lot of it is stuff that I thought. Professor David Jones says Trump's presidency was outstanding. 
His attitude, his language is sometimes awful, but uh, I don't have to have a president that I like. I have to have a president who runs this country effectively, and he does. He did a great job the first four years. I want him back in office. The guy went to North Korea. Nobody's done that before. Volunteers at Trump's New Hampshire campaign headquarters on Sunday tried to convince undecided voters to choose the former president. Campaign volunteer Tracy Sosa says the team is going to knock on doors and make phone calls. Anything to get President Trump back in, he's for the people, and I hope everybody sees that. Michael Torchetti says he never voted before Trump got into politics in 2016. He's the greatest president of all time, and I think uh, if everything's fair and there's no cheating, then he'll win. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ended his campaign on Sunday. Trump reacted to the news. But as you know, he left the campaign trail today at 3 p.m., and in so doing, he was very gracious, and he endorsed me. Iowans gave Trump an overwhelming victory in the first vote of the GOP primary contest. The former president currently leads former Ambassador Nikki Haley in New Hampshire by 17 points in the latest Real Clear polling average. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And make sure you don't miss our special coverage of the New Hampshire primary coming up tomorrow night. Join NTD's Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer for another exciting election night on The Nation Decides 2024. Exclusive on-the-ground access and special guests. Watch the action live tomorrow, January 23rd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, today marks 51 years since the Supreme Court decided on Roe versus Wade. Activists in Colorado now want to enshrine abortion access in the state's constitution. Find out how. Nearly 70 people have died this month from the harsh winter weather. We take a look at some key areas of the country where freezing temperatures have been causing headaches. More on that in just a moment here on NTD News Today. to former President Trump's legal battles. Court has been canceled today in the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial due to a sick juror. Trump and Carroll were present when Judge Lewis Kaplan announced the adjournment. Trump's attorney also reported that she didn't feel well after a parent of hers tested positive for COVID-19. She requested for Trump's testimony to be rescheduled for Wednesday because of the New Hampshire primary tomorrow. The judge said he'll take that into consideration. And today is the 51st anniversary of the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision. Abortion activists in Colorado are now launching efforts to enshrine access to abortion in Colorado's Constitution. Pro-abortion groups will collect signatures around the state. The goal is to have an amendment on the November ballot that would guarantee abortion access in the state's Constitution. A group called Coloradans for Protecting Reproductive Freedom is leading the effort. There are currently no laws restricting abortion in Colorado. However, organizers say it's important to formally add this to the Constitution so laws won't be changed in the future. That's according to NBC, which reports that act activists must collect over 120,000 signatures by the end of April to qualify for the ballot. And to pass, the measure would need to have 55% of people voting for it in November. 
Independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says his campaign is making moves to try to create its own party in an effort to meet the requirements to get on the ballot in each state. Earlier, I spoke with Epic Times reporter Jeff Lauderback, who's on RFK Jr.'s campaign trail to learn more. Jeff, to begin with, could you explain what does it take to get the, on the ballot for all 50 states and D.C.? Well, it varies from state to state. And RFK Jr., his campaign has a really in-depth and detailed plan. It varies uh, from state to state as far as signature requirements. Uh, some have different deadlines. They have different guidelines. It's, it's not like a one-size-fits-all solution. And that's why he has a team built in. And he estimates it's going to cost 15 to $18 million to do everything to get on the ballot and it's uh you know it's a difficult process so that's why uh not too many independents or third party candidates end up on the presidential ballot yeah speaking of those difficulties um rfk jr has said that ballot access laws for independent and third party candidates are among quote the worst forms of voter suppression in america today um, could you explain more about that and perhaps what solution he might be presenting it goes back to what he was saying about all the hoops, the guidelines, the hurdles. And he talks about how they make, they, they don't want anyone but a Democrat and a Republican to be on the ballot. And by they, I mean uh, like legislatures uh, that are operated by what he calls the two party duopoly. So he wants there to be more transparency and less red tape for not just him, but any independent or third party candidate now in the future, because he talks about how more than 50%, upwards to 60 to 65% in polls of Americans don't want to see a Trump and Biden rematch for 2024. And you have RFK Jr. and some other candidates trying to get on the ballot. He wants to make that easier. He vows if he gets elected president, he will. Uh, rework that process. Yeah, New York Times and Siena College poll late last year found that RFK Jr. has about 25% of voters considering him. They're saying they would consider him. Um, what do you think about this, the place of independent parties and third party candidates in the potential to affect the outcome, considering it is really a two party contest? Well, what I found interesting is I started covering this campaign for the Epic Times back in May. He announced in April, and then he was in the Democrat primary. And then because of uh, restrictions, he called the DNC uh, rigging the primary, trying to keep him off the ballot, any candidate but President Biden off the ballot. He announced on October 9th in Philadelphia that he was running as an independent. So I've covered that whole process. I've, uh, I can't even count the number of voter rallies and town halls and events all across the country I've been to. But one common theme that's interesting is most people I talk to there, and he's getting crowds of about 1,000, they're former Trump supporters who are now supporting him, or they voted for Trump in 2020, and they still support Trump, but they want to hear what RFK Jr. has to say. Pretty much everyone I talk to, whether they're a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, an Independent, they believe that he belongs on the ballot. And I think Americans are 
are tired of, as RFK Jr. talks about, the two-party duopoly, and they want options at least. Um, that's what America is all about, uh, pe giving people the right to select who they want. Well, thank you so much, Jeff Lauterbach, Epic Times reporter. Always great to speak with you. An update on the plagiarism investigation into former Harvard, Harvard President Claudine Gay. Today, the university submitted a trove of documents to House lawmakers who are probing the scandal. The documents filed Friday contain new information about Harvard's response to the controversy and a detailed review of the allegations. Also, for the first time, Harvard named the four members of a subcommittee that was formed to consider the charges against Gay. Last month, Harvard announced Gay planned to submit corrections to her 1997 PhD dissertation to correct instances of inadequate citation. Those were to be added to the ones she issued earlier to a pair of scholarly articles she wrote in the 2000s. On January 2nd, Gay stepped down as Harvard's president. It came after she faced criticism of the university's response to rising anti-Semitism on campus in the wake of the October 7th attack on Israel. A man is facing theft charges for allegedly stealing over 200 newspapers in Uray County, Colorado. The theft happened last Thursday. That's when the Uray County Plain Dealer published a front-page story about several arrests. They involved an alleged sexual assault at the home of Uray Police Chief Jeff Wood. The Sheriff's Office says by Thursday night, the suspected thief confessed to taking the papers and returned them to the newspaper's office. Investigators say the man has no connection to law enforcement or people involved in the alleged sexual assault. Three people were arrested in connection to last year's sexual assault in the chief's home. The Colorado Bureau of Investigation is examining the case. So far, no comment from Chief Wood or the URA Police Department. And much of the U.S. remained gripped by the deadly Arctic weather Sunday with sub-freezing conditions reaching as far south as Texas and Florida. But the numbing cold is expected to ease up in the coming days. Freezing rain, sleet and high wind gusts Sunday made traveling in parts of Kansas and Oklahoma particularly dangerous. Wind chills in Iowa made it feel like minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit in some parts. The cold was felt especially by people not used to such frigid weather in places like Memphis, Tennessee. Residents there were urged to boil water, and some had no water at all after freezing temperatures broke water mains across the city. Winter storms this month claimed at least 67 lives around the U.S., many involving hypothermia and road accidents. And three crew members were killed when an air ambulance helicopter crashed in Oklahoma. The accident occurred near Weatherford after the control center lost contact with the crew late Saturday. The crew was returning to base in Weatherford after completing a patient care transport to Oklahoma City. The names of the victims haven't been released yet. The National Transportation Safety Board will be investigating the crash. Search and rescue teams got 23 skiers and snowboarders to safety in the Vermont backcountry, braving sub-zero temperatures. Authorities received a report of seven to nine people missing on Saturday. They found a total of 21 people missing, including six children. Rescuers hiked and skied about five miles to get the group out. Authorities praised the volunteers who responded to the incident and urged caution as getting lost or injured in the wilderness can have tragic consequences. 
A man is in custody accused of trying to smuggle cocaine inside bags of jumbo frozen shrimp. Authorities at JFK International Airport say Zachary Scott, a U.S. citizen, was arrested after landing in the U.S. from Guyana. Customs agents say they found about 40 pounds of cocaine in his two suitcases. Scott allegedly told investigators that he brought the packages into the U.S. in exchange for a payment of about five dollars or $6,000. If convicted, Scott could face a maximum of 20 years in prison. A judge ordered Scott to be detained until his bail hearing on Tuesday. Coming up, a rare challenge to the Kremlin. A Russian soldier's wife is calling for Putin to bring her husband back home from Ukraine. We have more on her emotional appeal. And EU foreign ministers are in Brussels today discussing the Israel-Hamas war. Find out what some are calling the only solution to the conflict in the Middle East when we return. Joining us now is NTD Business host Don Ma to discuss China defying oil sanctions. China, in the world's biggest crude, the world's biggest crude importer, defied Western sanctions and received a record amount of crude oil from Russia last year. So, Don, how much crude did China import from Russia? Okay, so according to official data out from China, Russia shipped a record 107 million metric tons of crude oil to China last year. This is uh, equivalent to about more than 2 million barrels per day, and the volume of Russian crude shipped to China jumped a staggering 24% in 2023. Uh, and with this, Ch uh, Russia has become China's top uh, crude oil supplier in 2023, overtaking even uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, Russia now accounts for about 19% of China's uh, oil imports, while Saudi Arabia makes uh, up about 15%. It's the first time, actually, Russia has become China's number one oil supplier since, since 2018. Um, and uh, Russian oil if you remember, was shunned uh, by many international buyers following uh, Western sanctions over the invasion of Ukraine. And Russian crude oil traded at significant discounts to international benchmarks. And this was the case for much of last year amid a Western-imposed price cap as well. And with that, China took full advantage here. Um, because, of the, uh, because of this, uh, the Middle East oil giant lost to a lost Chinese market share uh, to cheaper Russian crude. And China's total spending on Russian crude oil reached uh, over $60 billion. And how China defied those sanctions was that uh, Chinese refiners uh, used intermediary traders to handle the shipping of Russian crude. And this allowed China to avoid direct violations of the sanctions imposed. So would you say that Western oil sanctions on Russia are working? Well, um, let's just put it this way. Let's say that it hasn't worked to the fullest extent uh, that officials had hoped for. Uh, Russia has tried to overcome Western sanctions by diverting all the shipments east. Uh, so that's uh, from Europe to India uh, and to China. Um, previously, the EU was the largest buyer of Russian crude oil and oil products, according for, uh, accounting for nearly half of those exports. But in 2023, China and India took in some 90% of Russia's uh, oil exports. And in addition to finding alternative buyers, it seemed like Russia has also gotten around the price cap uh, of around $60 per barrel that was imposed by the West. And 
Russia, China's oil imports um, from Russia last year were, was worth around $60 billion, um, which equates to an average price about $77 a barrel, so a bit higher than the, the price cap of $60 per barrel. And this is according to Bloomberg calculations. But you know, besides crude oil, Russia uh, has also uh, become the top supplier of fuel oil uh, to China last year. Beijing and Moscow have developed closer ties um, in the last two years in terms of trade and overall trade between Russia and China uh, reached a new record as well, 240 billion in 2023. It's also up 26% uh, from last year. Yeah, and it just goes to show you how much respect China does not have for the Western sanctions. And the global scale here, Saudi Arabia had to actually start importing a little bit more oil to the West in order to offset some of those lower sales. But do you have any updates on Macy's for us, Don? Yeah, just a quick one here. Uh, Macy has said that it's rejected an uh, unsolicited takeover bid worth nearly $6 billion. Last month, Arc House Management and Brigade Capital Management submitted a bid to buy the shares of Macy's uh, they don't already own for about uh, $21 a share. But Macy's CEO announced on Sunday that the company rejected the offer, saying it was not actionable and it failed to provide compelling value to the shareholders. And Arkhouse responded saying that the proposal would be increased if they're given access to the necessary due diligence, adding that it believes investors support taking Macy's uh, private, citing how shares soared after the proposal was revealed. It's a quick one right there. All right, thanks so much, Don. Thank you. Turning now to Moscow. At the end of, at the election headquarters of Vladimir Putin, the wife of a Russian soldier calling for her husband's return from Ukraine. This marking a rare move in a country where public criticism of the war is forbidden. The wife of a Russian soldier delivered an emotional appeal for his return from Ukraine on Saturday at the election headquarters of President Vladimir Putin, a defiant gesture in a country where open criticism of the war is banned. So what's next? The Ministry of Defense has spent its money. So now we need to squeeze everything out of our guys, get the last life out of them. So what, they come back to us just as stumps? Will they give me the stump? What will I get back? A man without legs, without arms, a sick man? Don't you know what's happening there? The heated exchange came after Maria Andrieva was told by a woman at Putin's election base that Russian soldiers in Ukraine were defending the motherland and that she should pray for them. It showed the depth of anger and despair among some soldiers' families as the war grinds on, with no end in sight after nearly two years. I think we need to come en masse, write similar appeals, instructions, in order to force them by weight of numbers. Previously, we went to lawmakers, we wrote letters. I think now is exactly the moment that we need to act. If not now, then when? Andrieva belongs to an organization of soldiers' wives called The Way Home, that is campaigning for the return of their husbands from Ukraine. Last month, Putin chose a gathering with soldiers to announce his plan to run for a new six-year term in the March election. Supporters and opponents alike see his victory as a foregone conclusion. He has said that Russia was in a strong position across the entire front line in Ukraine and would press ahead to meet the goals of what he calls a special military operation. Staying in Europe, we have some short headlines from the UK, Germany and other countries. 
EU foreign ministers are in Brussels today discussing the Israel-Hamas war. Some are acknowledging that peace can't be accomplished without addressing the root problems, such as aggression and terror coming from Hamas and from Iran. However, many are pushing for a two-state solution for Palestinians and Israelis. Here's what they're saying. We'll not talk about the peace process, but about the two-state solution process. If we are serious about that, we have to study the underlying causes. Israel can only live in safety if Palestinians are able to live in safety and dignity. Palestinians can only live in dignity, safety and freedom if Israel can live in safety. That's why the two-state solution is the only solution. There is no other alternative on the table to a two-state solution that is sustainable and that will make for sustainable peace into the future. Russia and Ukraine exchanging fire in areas close to the border. Russia says almost 30 people died in the city of Donetsk after Ukraine allegedly bombed a market. The city, located in eastern Ukraine, is currently under Russian control. The Kremlin says it condemns the attack. There was no immediate Ukrainian comment on the shelling, but President Volodymyr Zelensky on Sunday said Russia attacked more than 100 Ukrainian cities spanning nine regions in a single day. According to Zelensky, Russia's strikes were particularly severe in the Donetsk region. Storm Isha is unleashing rain and potentially deadly winds in Ireland and the UK. All train services from Edinburgh Station are suspended today. That's as the storm brings gusts of over 90 miles per hour across Scotland. Dozens of flights from Edinburgh and Glasgow airports were also cancelled. And in Ireland, airlines cancelled over 100 flights in and out of Dublin on Sunday. The UK's National Weather Service is issuing an unusual blanket wind warning for nearly all of the country. Officials say there's a possibility of a tornado in Northern Ireland and parts of Northern England and Scotland. Thousands took to the streets in Germany over the weekend. They're taking aim at a right-wing party called the Alternative for Germany, or AFD. The party has long been accused by some of representing some extreme right-wing ideas. Demonstrations gained momentum over the weekend. That's because reports have surfaced alleging the party is planning mass deportations of immigrants. The, AD, the AFD has denied the reports. I just think about what has happened and that it must never happen again. That Nazis, right-wingers and fascists come to power in any form. And we are already on a very bad path. Still to come, how one reporter traded her mic for grapes. The owner of a wine brand shares her inspiring story with NTD and why she loves small-scale French wine producers. And a giraffe in Mexico is getting a new home. Find out where he's moving to and why right here on NTD News Today. Welcome back from Fox Sports reporter to wine brand owner, Kavita Shane, owner of Sip Shane, tells her story and shares her love of small production French winemakers. Kavita Shane, thank you so much for joining us. You're the owner of a wine brand called Sip Shane. Uh, tell us a bit about how you got this company started. I mean, you were in TV and now you own a wine company. 
Thank you so much, Chris, for having me on NTD. I love being in New York. I hear it's going to snow tonight. I'm excited about that. Yes, stay warm. <laughs> well, um, I live in Florida. Yes, yeah, so I worked on TV, but I grew up in a wine family, a family that loved wine. And as my sisters and I got older, they shared it with us. And I always just love wine versus traditional alcohol. Um, so as you mentioned, I worked on TV. I covered sports and entertainment. And I was in my mid-30s when this company started. And I was single, no kids. And I was feeling kind of like I needed a change. And I wanted to do something that was all mine. Mm. So I took this trip to France, a place that my parents you know, fell in love. And I'd never been there. Mm. And I went there. And I just loved being in the villages of gourds and in the lavender fields and in wow. Saint-Tropez and watching people enjoy their food and their wine and savor the moment. Mm. And I fell mm -hmm. in love with rosé there because it was a wine varietal that I never really drank back here. So I come back to the United States, I go to my favorite restaurants, I order rosé, and I couldn't recreate that moment again. It just didn't taste the same. Mm. So I had this crazy idea. Okay. <laughs> As I told yeah. you, I needed a change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I traded in my mic for grapes. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. You mentioned your wine grower, Thomas. Yes. Tell me about him. So Thomas, the reason why I, I loved and wanted to work with him, number one, was the wine, the taste, the flavor profile. Um, you know, I loved it. The number two, he, him and his team were around my age. And it was cool to speak to people that weren't pretentious and that were ready to teach me, you know, and I was coming green. Um, also, he employs all women in the lab, in the vineyards, you know, in, in, in the fields. And I, I love that. Mm. Also, he's a biological farming practices, which means no pesticides. And I'm big into health and fitness. So that was a bonus for me. And I'm just very blessed to be able to working with someone like that. We gel very well together. Mm, incredible. So, you know, you started this wine company, there's so many wine brands out there. What separates Sipchonet from everything else out there? Well, we're a healthier version yes. of wine. Listen, everything in moderation. A lot of people are very into health and fitness. I am too. And that's great. If you don't drink, that's amazing. And if you do love to partake in alcohol or wine, mm. you want to choose something on the healthier side, right? Sure. So we're no sugar. Yeah. Uh, we're low sulfites. And again, I said we're no pesticides, which is amazing. Mm. And I think it's really important to make sure that if you are someone that wants to live a long life and you want to be healthy, you be careful what you put in your body. Be careful what you put on your body from your laundry detergent, your lotions, the food, the organic food, the beverages, the alcohol, whatever it is. You got to be picky. Yeah, for sure. My, my co-host, Steph, she's always giving me tips about food and, of course, Gina Marie on the, towards the end of our show. I love it. Um, explain to us a bit about how your wine is made. Okay, so I, our rosé, for example, Chenet Rosé, I like to say it's red wine and white wine clothing because it's made from red grapes. And then we have our Chenet Blanc. But what we do is we harvest the wine, then we destem. Okay, then there's a maceration process, which is a skin contact that's about three hours. Mm. Um, and then we press it to get the juice out and then we ferment it. And that's when you add the yeast, the yeast eats up the sugar, and voila, and then the end is the <laughs> assemblage where you blend it and you come up with the perfect blend. Mm, yeah, got <laughs> it. And so what's the ideal experience that your customer has? You know, think about someone enjoying Sipchene exactly the way you envisioned them when you started this company? Well, I feel like when you drink, open up a bottle of Sipchene, it's meant to be for celebration and it's not just for a birthday mm. or something like what we think is celebratory. It's just about being alive and being happy and healthy and family and love and laughter, you know, excitement and adventure because that's where it started and that's where we are, right? So when you open up that bottle, it should be a celebration of whatever it is you're celebrating, whether you're by yourself, whether you're with your daughter, whether you're at a dinner, whether you're at a party. Mm. And of course, it transports you back to the south of France. 
Are we going to have some together? Um, maybe the rosé. The rosé. Oh but I don't God. drink, so I'll only be able to smell it. Chris, Chris Rosé, your new nickname. Yes, my last <laughs> name is Beers, so. Oh, no, you don't drink and your last name is Beers. I know, it's crazy. Oh, well. <laughs> All right. Yes, this has been so fun. Thank you, Kavita. Thank you so much, Chris. <laughs> And next, a 200-pound loggerhead sea turtle was released back into the Atlantic Ocean in Marathon, Florida over the weekend. A local crowd cheered and applauded as she swam away. Ida Short and her husband, who were fishing for fun, found the sea turtle last Thursday. She was entangled in a lobster trap buoy line. The couple named the turtle Ida and said they were happy to help the creature. A team from the Turtle Hospital in the Florida Keys joined the U.S. Coast Guard to rescue Ida. Together, they brought her to the veterinary hospital for treatment. The turtle had fluids and antibiotics for her major injuries, or minor injuries, and she was ready to return to the ocean after two days of quick recovery. Loggerhead sea turtles are the world's largest hard-shell turtles and are considered a vulnerable species. A mature specimen can measure 35 inches and weigh 330 pounds. And over in Mexico, authorities are preparing to relocate a giraffe called Benito from a public park to a wildlife sanctuary. This is after activists denounced the poor conditions he currently lives in. According to the group Save Benito, the public park where he lives does not have adequate conditions for his development. And they say the extreme weather conditions in northern Mexico were affecting the animal's life. Staff from the Wildlife Conservation Park, where the animal will be transferred, carried out the giraffe's medical checkups. According to the Wildlife Sanctuary, Benito is expected to share a space with seven other giraffes in his new home. And a happy ending for a six-legged dog that had been abandoned in a parking lot. Ariel was named after the Disney princess because her extra back legs were partly fused together, resembling a mermaid's tail. But not anymore. Green Acres Rescue in the United Kingdom took in the abandoned spaniel and arranged for her to have surgery to remove the extra limbs. Ariel is now recovering with a foster family. She is already up walking around, eating and drinking normally. Well, if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. With the New Hampshire primaries almost upon us, we hear some analysts on what to expect and what's key for Nikki Haley to strike a blow against the frontrunner, former President Donald Trump. Trump arrives at the New York courthouse for the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial, but the judge suddenly cancels the proceedings. Find out why. Nearly 70 people have died this month from the harsh winter weather. We take a look at some key areas of the country where freezing temperatures have been causing headaches today. Forcibly harvesting organs from prisoners of conscience. A UN meeting is highlighting this horrendous human rights abuse by the Chinese communist regime. And in the NFL, more heartache in Buffalo as the Bills lose in familiar fashion. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss. The world's largest natural ice skating rink is open again after a two-year hiatus. We have footage of the beloved winter attraction in Canada. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. 
Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. And we're joined today by Kevin Hogan, who is standing in for Chris Beers, who's out reporting on the New Hampshire primaries. Welcome, Kevin. Great to have you with us. Thanks. Good to be here. And we start with former President Trump's legal battles. Court has been canceled today in the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial due to a sick juror. Trump and Carroll were present when Judge Lewis Kaplan announced the adjournment. Trump's attorney also reported that she didn't feel well after a parent of hers tested positive for COVID-19. She requested for Trump's testimony to be rescheduled for Wednesday because of the New Hampshire primary tomorrow. The judge said he'll take that into consideration. We now take a look at the 2024 presidential candidate Nikki Haley and today's Daniel Monahan reports on what she and her supporters are discussing as the hour of the New Hampshire primary and perhaps her political future draws near. Judge Judy or Judith Scheindlin warned about another Biden or Trump presidency on Sunday saying fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me. We've already seen We've already seen what these two presidencies look like. It's time for Nikki Haley. Independent voter Nancy Hansen says the country needs change. Both Democrats and Republican, and the best chance for that, I think, this year is through Nikki Haley. Undecided voter John Anthony is putting in the work to choose his candidate. I haven't picked who I'm going to vote for. I've been to every single person's rally that's been around the area. 20-year-old Noah Merrow says he generally leans Democrat. Because of a lot of the issues, um, specifically abortion, <laughs> things like that. Um, but Nikki Haley seems like a more approachable option because she's more centrist on the issues. Greg Moore says white-collar educated voters like Nikki Haley. But Donald Trump just rubs them the wrong way, mostly because of the tone. Commodities broker Chris Jay says he's leaning towards Haley. I just think that the, the theme of different candidate other than Biden and Trump is just critically important to where we're going. Jay hopes Haley can muster the strength to battle Trump. And um, I would like for her to show tougher and I would like to her to, for her to go up against Trump. I just don't know if she can do it. Haley on Saturday painted herself as a defender of the common man. I call elected officials out because accountability matters. I fight for the taxpayers. I fight for the real people. I don't fight for the politicians. Haley questioned whether Trump or Biden were mentally capable of serving as president again. We have a country in disarray and a world on fire, and we need to know that we are not giving our kids options of two 80-year-olds going into a presidency. Since entering the Republican race nearly a year ago, Haley has advocated for mental competency tests for older politicians. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Just one day to go before the New Hampshire primaries and NTD's Daniel Monahan reports on what frontrunner former President Trump and his supporters are saying as the contest edges closer. Former President Trump urged supporters to help get out the vote speaking in Manchester, New Hampshire over the weekend. So you need to get every patriot you know and turn them out to vote in record numbers. We have to not win, we have to win by a lot because we have to send a signal in November that we're coming. The president called on the GOP to come together. We have to unify because we have very important business ahead of us. 
Voters lined up in freezing temperatures outside an arena in downtown Manchester on Saturday to hear Trump lay out his plans for the country. 19-year-old Nino says he stands with Trump and agrees with most of his vision. I'm out here to be part of uh, history, I guess, um, and just to support Trump. Carla Marshall says people are working hard to keep Trump down, but he just bounces right up. I really love the guy, and I've never felt that way about a politician before. He says stuff that's inappropriate a lot, but a lot of it is stuff that I thought. Professor David Jones says Trump's presidency was outstanding. His attitude, his language is sometimes awful, but uh, I don't have to have a president that I like. I have to have a president who runs this country effectively, and he does. He did a great job the first four years. I want him back in office. The guy went to North Korea. Nobody's done that before. Volunteers at Trump's New Hampshire campaign headquarters on Sunday tried to convince undecided voters to choose the former president. Campaign volunteer Tracy Sosa says the team is going to knock on doors and make phone calls. Anything to get President Trump back in, he's for the people. And I hope everybody sees that. Michael Torchetti says he never voted before Trump got into politics in 2016. He's the greatest president of all time, and I think uh, if everything's fair and there's no cheating, then he'll win. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ended his campaign on Sunday. Trump reacted to the news. But as you know, he left the campaign trail today at 3 p.m., and in so doing, he was very gracious, and he endorsed me. Iowans gave Trump an overwhelming victory in the first vote of the GOP primary contest. The former president currently leads former Ambassador Nikki Haley in New Hampshire by 17 points in the latest Real Clear polling average. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And joining us live to discuss the New Hampshire primary and all the latest developments is Epic Times reporter Lawrence Wilson, who's in New Hampshire right now. Lawrence, how, what is the feeling on the ground there among voters? Well, it, there's a lot of support for President Trump. Uh, you know that he and Haley had been going kind of neck and neck here. They've been, she and Ron DeSantis were trying to make this a two-person race. Each of them wanted to be going up against Trump. Now, Haley has her wish there uh, with DeSantis dropping out. She now faces a President Trump one-on-one -on -one in the New Hampshire primary. And uh, there's a lot of feeling on both sides. Now, there's been a shift in momentum for Nikki Haley in the New Hampshire polls. Can you elaborate on the factors contributing to this shift and how it might impact the dynamics of the race? Well, Nikki Haley was rising in the polls here and, and in fact, in Iowa, where the, the last campaign was held. And uh, she had gotten, in one poll, showed her even with President Trump. That was just one poll. Others have shown her within 10 percentage points of President Trump. That's tailed off lately. I think that uh, we saw this a little bit in New Hampshire, that there was a little bit of surge for Nikki Haley, and then that kind of tabloed uh, at the... Uh, end there and she finished behind DeSantis. That seems to be happening here. There's a little rush toward Haley and then that has leveled off a little bit as Trump is now increasing his lead 19 points over Haley in the last poll. And there have been varying poll results even regarding comparing Trump and Haley. We've had some indicating a tie between Trump and Haley, others showing a double-digit lead for Trump. How do you interpret these varying poll results and what do you think it could indicate for Haley going forward? 
I think we have to look at the average of polls. Uh, sometimes the latest poll is interesting and it certainly gives you something to focus on. But the average of polls has consistently shown President Trump well in the lead. Uh, in terms of uh, Haley's future right now, she's fighting an uphill battle here in New Hampshire. Uh, she's at least 10 points down uh, by some polls, much more than that, uh, to President Trump. In most races, we find that the polling is not entirely accurate, but runs pretty close to the average. So she's facing an uphill battle here. And uh, it's unclear if she's going to get enough last minute support. She's certainly not going to get all of uh, Ron DeSantis's support, maybe a third of that. The latest polls show that President Trump was the second choice for about 60 percent of Ron DeSantis's supporters. So that stands to benefit Trump, uh, just mm. him dropping out, not even the endorsement. So she's really pushing uphill in New Hampshire. And your recent article in the Epic Times talks about the narratives that both Trump and Haley are trying to create about each other. Tell me more about that. Well, you heard a little bit of it in the in the preceding uh, clip in that Haley has gone after Trump primarily on two things. One, she's starting to criticize him based on his age more and more and questioning his mental competency. She says America doesn't want a race between two 80-year-olds. President Trump is 77. Uh, President Biden is 81. She's presenting herself as more youthful, more vigorous, a better alternative. The other word she likes to use is chaos. She says about President Trump, chaos follows him. And her word is, President Trump was the man for yesterday. I'm the person for today and going forward. So that's her attack on him. Uh, President Trump depicts her as, aims to depict her as a lightweight. She's just not up to the job. She can't handle dealing with foreign leaders. Uh, she just doesn't have what it takes. He's somewhat dismissive of her candidacy, or at least he has been up till now. So that's the way they're positioning each other mm. in trying to define this race. And just lastly, briefly, you also spoke about in your article the, def the distinction between Trump and Haley uh, using their language in terms of how they describe America. Trump saying uh, promoting America first and Haley promoting a strong America. How do you think that could play out in the voters' minds, especially in terms of foreign policy and, for example, the Ukraine war? Well, those who are kind of Reaganite in their thinking uh, favor American strength and peace through strength. Uh, they're going to be more inclined to Haley, that she wants to continue supporting Ukraine. She wants to stop Putin in his tracks. She wants to do the same for authoritarian regimes around the country. President Trump has been more skeptical of ongoing support for Ukraine. He says, let's pour those resources here at home where they're needed first. Right. So it's more of a uh, let's focus on domestic issues versus a we need a strong foreign policy in order to be the leader of the free world. All right. So those who, yeah, Th voters have their choice. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lawrence Wilson, reporter of the Epic Times. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And the race for the Republican and Democratic presidential nominations will converge in New Hampshire tomorrow in the first primary election of the season. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on what to expect. The Republican primary will test former President Donald Trump's frontrunner status in a state he carried by a comfortable margin in the 2016 primary. It will also be a test for former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who wants to establish herself as the main alternative to Trump. 
Political science professor Dante Scala says this factor is key for Haley. Turnout, turnout, turnout. Scala says Haley's hoping to get independent-minded, undeclared voters to jump in and vote Republican on Tuesday. According to the professor, she needs to shock everyone and reset expectations. I think the national political media saw Iowa and concluded this race is just about over. In the Democratic primary, President Joe Biden won't appear on the ballot due to a disagreement over national party rules his administration pushed for. The Democratic candidates whose names will appear on the ballot are Representative Dean Phillips of Minnesota and Marianne Williamson, who also ran for president in 2020. The last polls in the state close at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, although polls for most voters close at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and some close at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Registered party members may vote only in their party's primary. Independent or unaffiliated voters may vote in either primary. New voters may register on primary day at a polling site, but the deadline to change party affiliation for voters who are already registered was in October. As of December 28th last year, there were around 873,000 registered voters in New Hampshire. Registered Republicans make up 31% of voters, compared with 30% for Democrats. Independents or unaffiliated voters comprise 39% of all voters. The latest real clear polling averages show former President Trump with a commanding 17-point lead over second place Nikki Haley. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And make sure you don't miss our special coverage of the New Hampshire primary coming up tomorrow night. Join NTD's Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer for another exciting election night on The Nation Decides 2024. Exclusive on-the-ground access and special guests. Watch the action live tomorrow, January 23rd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, New Hampshire captures the nation's attention every four years during election season. We take a look at the first in the nation primary and why it's so important. Less than 24 hours before voting begins in the New Hampshire primary. We hear what voters at a Nikki Haley event there have to say about her presidential bid after the short break. New Hampshire captures the nation's attention every four years during election season. Let's take a look at the first in the nation primary and why it's so important. Though the Iowa caucuses are the first votes to be cast, New Hampshire is the nation's first true primary. That's because the state maintains a law that protects its first in the nation status. In 1948, legislatures in the Granite State decided to hold the presidential primary on the same day as town meetings to save money. New Hampshire's town meeting day was well before any other states held their presidential primaries. This meant that since that year, New Hampshire would always be the nation's first primary. The state's top election officials can also move the date if another state tries to hold theirs earlier. This year, Democrats wanted to hold their first primary in South Carolina, but Republicans refused to budge from New Hampshire. I'm thrilled to be here in the home of the First in the nation primary. Do you know why you're first in the nation? Because of me. I kept you there. Unlike Biden, I kept you there. So why is this important? 
Whoever wins the New Hampshire primary captures early momentum in the race for their party's nomination, and losers have to reevaluate their campaigns. With only two candidates left on the GOP side and former President Trump in the lead, a disappointing performance in New Hampshire could mean the end of Nikki Haley's campaign that would make Trump the Republican nominee for a third straight election. But New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu believes Haley could still pull off an upset, even if she doesn't win the Granite State. On the other hand, if she does well, she could carry that momentum into future primaries. But everything Nikki's trying to do is build on the momentum from Iowa, right? 2% to 20%, build on even more momentum here. The fact that she's knocked all the other candidates out, nobody thought that was possible, but she's really knocked everybody out. Voters in New Hampshire are different from those in Iowa. They're more moderate and less evangelical. Haley is positioning herself as that moderate option for New Hampshire Republicans. This is a wake-up call for the Republican Party. Do you want to go with a small amount that you keep pushing people away, or do you want to go with a conservative that knows how to talk to moderates and independents and not make them feel bad, but make them feel included? On the Democratic side, President Joe Biden is in the lead, but the Democratic National Committee's new rules made South Carolina their first official primary instead of New Hampshire. This means Biden's name will not appear on the New Hampshire ballots. Voters will have to write in his name, and a victory here will not give the winner any delegates. The DNC has deemed the New Hampshire primary meaningless, but Biden's closest competitor, Congressman Dean Phillips of Minnesota, is hoping to take advantage of the president's absence. I love you all. Y'all ready for some change? Yeah, well, I am too. A CNN University of New Hampshire poll released on Sunday showed Biden drawing 63 percent of the state's primary vote, with Phillips at 10 percent. Nikki Haley is going one-on-one -on -one with former President Trump in New Hampshire. This after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis withdrew from the race. For an on-the-ground look at her campaign, we're joined live by Entity's Chris Beers. Chris, give us an update on Haley's campaign. Hey guys, I'm here in Franklin, New Hampshire, in front of the, in front of the Veterans of Foreign Wars here. It's a small place. You know, Nikki Haley has been doing all kinds of stops. She's been very busy the past couple days at small places just like this. She stopped at a restaurant, a hockey game, a high school, a middle school. She has a sort of unique advantage over former President Trump because her campaign is uh, a bit smaller and she doesn't have the Secret Service detail that has to go in and make sure the place is secure so she can be a bit more nimble than Trump. Let's hear what some of the voters here had to say earlier after she spoke uh, just a few hours ago. I like some of her policies. I mean, obviously, we can't agree with everything. Uh, but for the most part, I, I believe she would be a great president. I like her a lot. Yeah, I've been to a number of her events, and, and she, what she called, speaks hard truths. I think she says what she means. And She's smart. She seems to have some common sense. She's certainly a, a vast improvement over Donald Trump. We're poised at the edge of World War III, in my opinion. There's a, there's a, we need people who can think seriously about uh, their responsibilities as president. She's the candidate that I'm endorsing. I'm, I'm poor, uh, as I said before to other people. Baby boomers need to step back, and <laughs> we need some new blood. And Haley, to me, seems the most uh, electable from our standpoint. Okay, and what issues are most important to you this election cycle? Well, I just retired, so Social Security and VA. Financial responsibility, certainly. I think the federal government has lost that. 
long time? Uh, I think the economy is the most important issue, and then uh, secondly, foreign policy. Uh, foreign policy is very important. Immigration, my second most important, and third is the economy. Democracy, so really caring about uh, the rule of law and ensuring that everybody's ballot is counted and that we have a peaceful transition of power. I, to be quite honest, um, it's less about an agenda of certain issues and more about making sure that we've got leaders who can move us forward. We also heard from Dan Ebhart, uh, Ron DeSantis surrogate, who was on his way to New Hampshire when he found out that the DeSantis campaign withdrew, which sort of indicates that the decision for DeSantis to withdraw from the campaign, from the race, was a bit of a last-minute decision because, yeah, Ebhart was up he- heading up here when he found out. Let's hear what he had to say. I think that she's more moderate and less conservative than Trump and Governor DeSantis, uh, but I'm interested to hear what she has to say. Looking to see if she uh, seems strong enough to go up against Trump and strong enough to go against Joe Biden. That's what I want to see today. And what's next in this race? Voting will begin at midnight in some places that have less than 100 voters. It'll end as soon as those voters finish voting. We could get some of the early vote count in really early because it's a bit of a tradition in some places in New Hampshire to come out in the middle of the night and vote. Most polling places will open at about 7 or 8 a.m., close at about 7 or 8 p.m. And, of course, we have from 8 p.m. to 12 midnight NTD's special live coverage of the voting here in New Hampshire. The Nation Decides 2024, featuring NTD's Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer. Back to you guys. Absolutely, for sure we do. We'll be sure to keep an eye on that, too. Thank you so much. Great updates, Chris. And today is the 51st anniversary of the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision. Abortion activists in Colorado are now launching efforts to enshrine access to abortion in Colorado's Constitution. Pro-abortion groups will collect signatures around the state. The goal is to have an amendment on the November ballot that would guarantee abortion access in the state's Constitution. A group called Coloradans for Protecting Reproductive Freedom is leading the effort. There are currently no laws restricting abortion in Colorado. However, organizers say it's important to formally add this to the Constitution so that laws won't be changed in the future. That's according to NBC, which reports that activists must collect over 120,000 signatures by the end of April to qualify for the ballot. And to pass, the measures would need to have 55% of people voting for it in November. And an update on the plagiarism investigation into the former Harvard president, Claudine Gay. Today, the university submitted a trove of documents to House lawmakers who are probing the scandal. The documents filed Friday contain new information about Harvard's response to the controversy and a detailed review of the allegations. Also, for the first time, Harvard named the four members of a subcommittee that was formed to consider charges against Gay. Last month, Harvard announced Gay planned to submit corrections to her 1997 Ph.D. dissertation to correct instances of inadequate citation. Those were to be added to the ones she had issued earlier to a pair of scholarly articles she wrote in the 2000s. On January 2nd, Gay stepped down as Harvard's president. It came after she faced criticism of the university's response to rising anti-Semitism on campus in the wake of the October 7th attacks on Israel. A man is facing theft charges for allegedly stealing over 200 newspapers in Uray County, Colorado. 
The theft happened last Thursday. That's when the Uray County Plain Dealer published a front page story about several arrests. They involved an alleged sexual assault at the home of Uray Police Chief Jeff Wood. The Sheriff's Office says by Thursday night, the suspected thief confessed to taking the papers and returned them to the newspaper's office. Investigators say the man has no connection to law enforcement or people involved in the alleged sexual assault. Three people were arrested in connection to last year's sexual assault in the chief's home. The Colorado Bureau of Investigation is examining the case. So far, no comment from Chief Wood or the URA Police Department. And much of the U.S. remained gripped by deadly Arctic weather Sunday, with sub-freezing conditions reaching as far south as Texas and Florida. But the numbing cold is expected to ease up in the coming days. Freezing rain, sleet, and high wind gusts Sunday made traveling in parts of Kansas and Oklahoma particularly dangerous. Wind chills in Iowa made it feel like minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit in some parts. The cold was felt especially by people not used to such frigid weather in places like Memphis, Tennessee. Residents there were urged to boil water, and some had no water at all after freezing temperatures broke water mains across the city. Winter storms this month claimed at least 67 lives around the U.S., many involving hypothermia or road accidents. And three crew members were killed when an air ambulance helicopter crashed in Oklahoma. The accident occurred near Weatherford after the control center lost contact with the crew late Saturday. The crew was returning to base in Weatherford after completing a patient care transport to Oklahoma City. The names of the victims haven't been released yet. The National Transportation Safety Board will be investigating the crash. Search and rescue teams got 23 skiers and snowboarders to safety in the Vermont backcountry, leaving sub-zero temperatures. Authorities received a report of seven to nine people missing on Saturday. They found a total of 21 people missing, including six children. Rescuers hiked and skied about five miles to get the group out. Authorities praised the volunteers who responded to the incident and urged caution as getting lost or injured in the wilderness can have tragic consequences. A man in custody is accused of trying to smuggle cocaine inside bags of frozen jumbo shrimp. Authorities at the JFK International Airport say Zachary Scott, a U.S. citizen, was arrested after landing in the U.S. from Guyana. Customs agents say they found about 40 pounds of cocaine in his two suitcases. Scott allegedly told investigators that he brought the packages into the U.S. in exchange for a payment of about five dollars or $6,000. If convicted, Scott could face a maximum of 20 years in prison. A judge ordered Scott to be detained until his bail hearing Tuesday. Coming up, massive landslide hitting villages in China. Eight are dead and rescue work is underway. We have the latest on the accident. A semi-submersible carrying tons of drugs. Ecuador's armed forces made the dramatic bust at sea. We'll have the details for you soon when we return. A shocking human rights abuse on an unprecedented scale. A crucial UN event today focused on the Chinese regime's practice of forced organ harvesting. The evidence is overwhelming that this gravest and most despicable of human rights violations has occurred in China on a large scale in the past, and the evidence is that it continues to this day. 
The United Nations held its Universal Periodic Review for Communist China on Monday in Geneva. It's an examination of human rights records that all UN member states have to undergo every four to five years. The meeting highlighted the Chinese communist regime's practice of forcibly extracting organs from prisoners of conscience and selling them for profit. Experts testifying at the hearing included human rights lawyers, professors, and medical professionals. It has been established beyond doubt that the Chinese Communist Party sanctions the murder of prisoners of conscience in order to harvest and sell their organs. The principal victims of this evil practice are Falun Gong practitioners that follow the Buddhist school practice of Qiong and Uyghurs. The evidence for this dates back nearly years and as nearly 20 years. Harold King is the deputy director at Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting. He presented data showing that in China, the number of transplant centers grew from 150 to more than 600 between 1999 and 2006. The number of annual organ transplants grew by 250 percent around the same time. China did not have a voluntary donation system in place during that time period. And the other factor that's really specific um, to this case, the forced organ harvesting, is that waiting patients from around the world only had 15 days to one month waiting time. Um, and again, this is in great contrast to what happens in Europe or America or other countries where it can be months or even uh, several years. Falun Gong practitioners are believed to be a major source of organs. Also known as Falun Dafa, it's a spiritual meditation practice based on the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. It grew enormously popular in China in the 1990s. In 1999, the Chinese regime unleashed a brutal campaign to eliminate the practice. Millions of Falun Gong practitioners were harassed and imprisoned. At least thousands were tortured to death. We call on the United Nations members states to courageously question China's human rights record during the Universal Periodic Review. We propose the creation of a special rapporteur on forced organ harvesting of living prisoners of conscience in the People's Republic of China. And we call for the establishment of an international criminal tribunal for forced organ harvesting in China. The panel said that the silence and inaction of the international community has emboldened the Chinese state to commit more human rights abuses globally. Tuesday's session of the UN Universal Periodic Review will focus on other human rights issues in China. They include the crackdown in Xinjiang, Tibet, Hong Kong, and civil society. And now we zoom in on Beijing's human rights abuses. At least 209 Falun Gong practitioners were persecuted to death by the Chinese Communist regime in 2023. That's according to a new report from Minghui.org, a U.S.-based clearinghouse that keeps track of the persecution of Falun Gong. Over half of the victims were seniors. The youngest was only 23 years old. Reports say they were subjected to various forms of torture before they died including sexual abuse, electric batons, being denied access to the bathroom. Some had their feet burned, and some were imprisoned in a cage. Plus, over 1,000 practitioners have been handed illegal prison terms. Over 6,000 have had their homes raided or were harassed due to their spiritual belief. Falun Gong is a spiritual meditation based on the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. 
In the 1990s, about one in every 13 people in China practiced it. But millions of them were thrown into prison and tortured after the Chinese regime launched a nationwide persecution campaign. Thousands have died, and an unclear number have had their organs harvested from them while they were alive. A massive landslide hit villages in southwestern China today, killing at least eight people and leaving dozens missing. The landslide happened in the early morning in Yunnan province amid freezing temperatures. It's still unclear what triggered the landslide. Rescue work is now underway but has been difficult by the cold weather. Over 500 people have been evacuated. And in more China news, Chinese and Hong Kong stocks hitting a new low today. What does this say about global investors' confidence in China's economy? That and more tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time only on NTD's China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer. And Ecuador's armed forces seized a semi-submersible carrying more than three tons of drugs at sea. The bus took place off the coast of a northwestern city on Saturday. The operation was assisted by the Colombian Army. Three Colombian men were detained and handed over to Ecuador's national police. According to authorities, the drugs seized were valued at $50 million. And in the NFL... More heartache in Buffalo as the Bills lose in familiar fashion. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss. And the world's largest natural ice skating rink is open again after a two-year hiatus. We have footage of this beloved winter attraction in Canada right here on NTD News Today. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, another big weekend in the NFL leaves us with four teams left. Do you have a favorite? You know, going into the weekend, I did have one. I thought San Francisco was the best. They were actually fortunate, I thought, to beat Green Bay uh, Saturday. Brock Purdy, who's probably going to win MVP, he was off on several throws. Could have been interception. He was very fortunate that they didn't because they only won by three points. One interception really could have doomed them. Now, Baltimore and Detroit, they both looked good in their wins. They're considered somewhat wild cards, though, because they haven't, they haven't been this far in the playoffs in a while. I mean, Detroit have, hasn't been this far in like 30 years. They've never made a Super Bowl either. Now, meanwhile, the Chiefs, they really had the most exciting win. I mean, that was a back-and-forth contest between them and the Bills last night that we've really come to expect after seeing these two go head-to-head -head in the playoffs a number of times. But I'm still not as high on the Chiefs because of the receivers, so... I guess I'm still going with San Francisco. Now, Dave, after that Chiefs win, wide right too was trending on X. What's the significance of that? Yeah, Buffalo missed a crucial game-tying 44-yard field goal last night. It was wide right. With less than two minutes left, that basically lost them the game. Now, even more famously, they lost Super Bowl 25 30 years ago when they missed what would have been a game-winning field goal with like five seconds left. Uh, that one was the original wide right. Now, 47 yards for an NFL kicker is considered makeable, so that was kind of considered the beginning of their bad luck. They lost four straight Super Bowls. That was their bad. That was their best shot. Now, they've had a very good team the past four years. The Chiefs, though, have beaten them three of those times, including last night. To me, though, as long as the Bills continue to have Josh Allen, I think they'll still stay as contenders. That's a great wrap with the NFL. Now let's switch gears to tennis here. Australian Open is down to eight left. Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz are remaining. Do you see these two meeting again for the title? 
Yeah, I think most too. I mean, they've been flip-flopping between one and two in the rankings for like more than a year now. Uh, and they've had some memorable matches already. They have yet to meet here, though, in the Australian Open. Al Alcarez has ever, never actually made it this far in this tournament. Of course, he's only 20 years old. Yet it's safe to say, I think in the absence of Rafael Nadal, Alcarez is definitely Djokovic's best rival. Should Djokovic win out, most think he will. This would be Grand Slam win number 25. And with Nadal sidelined and contemplating retirement, it's looking more and more like no one's going to catch him for a long time. I mean, Nadal has 22 and he's in second. In any case, both players play tonight. Should they meet, it would only be in the finals, so we'll have to see. I'm sure will. Thank you so much, Dave, as always. Thank you, guys. And in health news, according to a new study, taking benzoazepines during pregnancy increases the odds of miscarriage by almost 70%. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Using common anti-anxiety meds like Xanax or diazepam while pregnant could lead to heartbreak. A new study of over 3 million pregnancies was recently published. It links benzodiazepine use to a staggering 69% increase in the risk of miscarriage. Benzodiazepines are commonly referred to as benzos. They slow down the brain activity and the nervous system. Doctors often prescribe benzos to treat anxiety disorders, alcohol withdrawal symptoms, seizures, and insomnia. To gauge miscarriage risk, researchers analyzed over 3 million Taiwanese pregnancies. They compared 2 million women's records with participants averaging 30 years old. Specifically, scientists looked at fetal benzodiazepine exposure 1 to 28 days before miscarriage. They used two comparison reference periods, 4 to 8 weeks and 26 to 30 weeks before the pregnant woman's last menstrual cycle. By overlaying benzodiazepine usage data, researchers could pinpoint associated miscarriage rates. Results showed 4.4% of studied pregnancies ended in miscarriage. While all benzodiazepines raised miscarriage odds, some posed high risks. These findings underscore the necessity for healthcare professionals to meticulously balance the risk-benefit ratio when considering the use of benzodiazepines to treat psychiatric and sleep disorders during pregnancy. The new study validates previous research suggesting benzodiazepine usage in pregnancy elevates miscarriage risk. It is common for women to take medications during pregnancy. However, expectant mothers and women thinking about becoming pregnant should consult their doctor if they are considering psychotropic or other drugs that may impact the fetus. The joy of winter is back as the world's largest natural ice skating rink reopens in Canada. For the first time in two years, skaters can have fun again on the renowned Rideau Canal Skateway. I'm actually pretty excited about it. I haven't been skating on the canal yet, so I was really excited about today. Located in Ottawa, the nearly five-mile-long canal is a UNESCO World Heritage Site and a popular des destination for skaters. The skateway remained closed last season due to a lack of ice. For safe skating conditions, Canadian authorities require at least 10 to 14 consecutive days of temperatures between minus 4 to 14 degrees Fahrenheit and ice thickness of 12 inches. And a 200-pound loggerhead sea turtle was released back into the Atlantic Ocean in Marathon, Florida over the weekend. A local crowd cheered and applauded as she swam away. Ida Short and her husband, who were fishing for fun, found the sea turtle last Thursday. She was entangled in a lobster trap buoy line. 
The couple named the turtle Ida and said they were happy to help the creature. A team from the Turtle Hospital in the Florida Keys joined the U.S. Coast Guard to rescue Ida. Together, they brought her to the veterinary hospital for treatment. The turtle had fluids and antibiotics for her minor injuries. She was ready to return to the ocean after two days of quick recovery. Loggerhead sea turtles are the world's largest hard-shell turtles and are considered a vulnerable species. A mature specimen can measure 35 inches and weigh 330 pounds. And over in Mexico, authorities are preparing to relocate a giraffe called Benito from a public park to a wild sanctuary. This after activists denounced the poor conditions he currently lives in. According to the group Save Benito, the public park where he lives does not have adequate conditions for his development. And they say the extreme weather conditions in northern Mexico were affecting the animal's life. Staff from the Wildlife Conservation Park, where the animal will be transferred, carried out the giraffe's medical checkups. According to the Wildlife Sanctuary, Benito is expected to share a space with seven other giraffes in his new home. And a happy ending for a six-legged dog that had been abandoned in a parking lot. Ariel was named after the Disney princess because her, lack of, her extra back legs were partly fused together, resembling a mermaid's tail. But not anymore. Green Acres Rescue in the United Kingdom took in the abandoned spaniel and arranged for her to have surgery to remove the extra limbs. Ariel is now recovering with a foster family. She is already up walking around, eating and drinking normally. And that's all for today's news. Thank you for turning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.